I heard talk in the hallway that you guys were told, some of you, that you need to put your feet up under the chair in front of you because we're going to step on some toes today. It's true. But I'm not stepping on your toes. I want to step on your heart a little bit. That's where God wants to work. And today is, I'm telling you, it's, it's an amazing text. It's a challenging text. It's a text that's going to confront us with some things that we often don't want to talk about and we don't want to see in ourselves. But the reality is today that we literally, as we gather to look at this text together, I'm telling you, you're going to find that there's some shocking statements in here. Because here's the truth about this idea of things being meaningless. It's easy for us to, to understand what Solomon is saying here when he talks about the fact that, you know, you know, without God, it looks like life has no meaning. If you don't believe in him, if you don't recognize him as creator and sustainer and savior of our souls, then the reality is life looks like you just live and you die. It looks like it can be such a waste. And, and we want to ask, you know, what is the purpose? What is the use of, of life without eternity and without God? And, and he even says that many of us, we're chasing things in life that we think will give us meaning. And he talks about money and talks about fame and he talks about uh, a power and prestige and all these things that he lists and he talks about. And he says that, that pretty much all of these things, they end in the same place. That without God... Life is meaningless. If you're going to find meaning, if you're going to find purpose, if you're going to find hope, if you're going to find joy and peace and all the things that we all say that we desire and we want in life, he is simply stating that you can look the whole world over, but you will only find it in Jesus Christ. But then you get to chapter 5. And when you get to chapter 5, he throws something into the mix that, that I think most of us aren't expecting, that most of us aren't really thinking about often. And what he says here is that not only can, can the other things that we talk about be meaningless without God, but he actually goes on record as saying that our religion can be meaningless. Our worship, or what we call worship, can be meaningless. And, and, and the shocking statement of all of this is, it means that there is a reality that we can actually come into this room and think about it for a second because it almost seems oxymoronic. He's literally saying here that you can almost have godless worship. You can go through an hour of sitting in a room like this and never truly commune with God. Never truly be transformed by the God that, that, that we say that we're here to worship. The reality is, the reason that this happens is because so many of us, when, when we, and, and sometimes we get upset because we say, you know, our, our, you know, we don't have a religion. Well, that's not true. James says that he talks about pure and undefiled religion. Oh, we want to be sure that our religion is pure and undefiled. We want to be sure that our religion is understood in the concept of a relationship. We know that there are things that God has asked of us and God requires of us. And we know that there are things that he wants us to do in obedience to him. And worship, I think where we get confused is we think that worship is really just boiled down to one week, one hour of that week. We, we separate secular things in our life and the sacred things of our lives. 
And we say that Sunday is about church and Monday to Saturday is about our lives. And the reality is, Jesus says there is truly no difference. That real worship is more than just this hour. And what we do in this hour matters. Folks, you may not realize it yet, but I want to beat this into all of our heads, myself included. One of the greatest mistakes that we ever made in worship is when we began to think that worship is about us. That, that we come to church and, again, our default, I mean, it, it, it's, we have to fight against the idea that I'm the center of the universe and that God exists for me rather than I exist for him. You see the difference in those two things? And so when we think about even church, we have to ask the question, what honors God? What pleases God? What has God revealed? What has God said? We can't look at church like, 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 like we shop around for anything else in life and we're trying to see what pleases me the most. You aren't here so that you will be pleased. You are here so that God will be honored, glorified, and pleased. And so it's a different way to look at worship than the way that most of us look at this issue of worship. And so in chapter 5, a staggering statement that even our worship can be meaningless when God isn't in it. That's, that's just a hard thought. But you're going to see today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that that was happening back then and it is happening today. There's nothing new under the sun, he said. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, underline the first three words. Let's just start off with how important those first three words are. Guard your steps. Uh, let me put that in plain English. Watch your step. Pay attention to how you walk. Pay attention to what it is that you are doing. He is giving you a warning here. And, and listen to the warning because it's, it's not what we normally think about. It says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. So that means as you gather with God's people to worship God. Now for them, it's different than it is for us. Because for them, literally when they went to the temple, that was the place where God's presence dwelt. He manifested himself, right? On the mercy seat, on the holy, in the Holy of Holies, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, between the two cherubim. They gathered there to worship in that place. And we know that it's different for us because the temple doesn't exist anymore as a building. But the temple is us being built up. Is the body of Jesus Christ. He dwells in us. Tabernacle means to dwell, right? And God now dwells in the lives of those who are his. And literally, worship isn't something we go to or worship we go do. Worship is something that literally should be happening all day, every day within us. And he says, be cognizant of the fact that when you gather together as the people of God, God is with you. Let me tell you how the Bible puts it. It says God inhabits the praises of his people. So that means that when we gather to worship, when we celebrate and praise him, you need to realize that it's not just people gathering, it's God gathering with his people. Fellowshipping, dwelling among his people in fellowship as we worship him and give thanks to him. So guard your steps as you go into the house of God and, and, and it says, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Wow, we need to know what the sacrifice of fools are because we don't want to do that. For they do not know 
that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Okay, that's kind of opposite of the way we normally think. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, don't be laid in pain for it, for he takes no delight in fools. There's the word again. Pay what you vow, for it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Don't let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake, the vow that you made he's referring to. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness or vanity. Rather, fear God. There's a lot here, church. What do we need to be careful of as we come into the presence of God? Because that's what he's telling us. Guard your steps. Be careful, he says. Number one, we need to be careful in our attitude toward God. You say, well, Aaron, what do you mean to be careful in our attitude toward God? Solomon, you have to understand, he lived right beside the temple. His palace was right there. And no doubt, every day, not only was he on his throne there in the palace, but likely he was there in the temple every day among the people of God, especially on those high holy days of worship. And so Solomon's perspective is that he's, he's watching continually the people of God come into that temple, that magnificent building that was built for the purpose of worship, and he's, watch, he's watching worshipers come, and he's wa watching worshipers go. He's seeing them praise God. He's watching them pray. He's seeing them offer up all of these sacrifices, all of the blood that was spilt. And he's watching them make vows to God, making commitments to God. And you know what he noticed? It's what he's talking about here in verse 1. That not all of those people are sincere. You know what it means to be sincere. When you write sincerely on the bottom of a note, you're basically saying, I've hidden nothing. What I've said is what I mean. There's no hidden message. Sincerely, I, I, I mean what I just said. And he's saying that when it comes to the worship of God, he sees that among the people of God, there can be a complete lack of sincerity in worship. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't go through the religion. It doesn't mean they didn't go through the, the pain of money and the tithes and offerings, right? It doesn't mean that they didn't bow their, their knee and, and offer up some kind of a prayer. It doesn't mean that when the songs were sung, they didn't sing. That's not what he's talking about. What he is trying to say is that while all of the outward religion is there, you know what was missing? The heart of worship, the love for God. And, and, and if you want to say, well, how do you know that you love God? Well, Jesus made it very clear, and it's what he refers to here. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. You'll keep my commandments. Let me say that again. A test of your love for Jesus Christ 
is your willingness to obey him. And that's what he says here in these verses. If you look and it says, guard your steps as you go into the house of God and draw near to what? What does it say? Draw near to listen. And we're talking about listen like your mama meant listen. You know, when your mama looked at you and said, you're not listening to me. Okay, what she meant was she didn't mean you didn't have the ability to hear audibly what she was saying. What did she mean? She means I told you to take the trash out. And you hadn't done it. And, and you sit there all day long and you keep saying, Mom, I heard you. Mom, I heard Any moms ever get that? Mom, I heard what you said. And she's looking at you going, I will snatch you bald-headed. I want you to listen to me. <laughs> Listening means that you've done it. Listening means that you're heeding what it is that you're being asked to do. It's the same word, actually, if you go over in the book of Samuel and you remember the story where King Saul was approached and because of his disobedience to the Lord and what it, the Lord had clearly asked him to do, and, and, and if you remember, they were supposed to conquer the city and destroy everything, and he didn't do it. And when the prophet went to him, if you remember, he says, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. That same word obey there is what is translated here, listen, because listening and obeying in the Hebrew language, it's the same thing. When you really listen, you do what you've been asked to do. And he says, so guard your steps, because when you come into the house of God, you know what the question really is about? Have you drawn near to listen, or have you just drawn near to check off? I've been, I've attended. I did what I need to do. I, I made my appearance. There are many people that their attitude toward God, let me tell you this, what is, and it's always been this way, it's nothing new to Americans. We treat God like he's a genie. More than he's the invisible, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, holy, righteous God that he is. We treat him like he's a genie. We think that God exists to pour out his favor upon us. And here's how we look at it. Here, I mean, we would never say that. But I want you to know there are many people that they put going to church as the equivalent of, that's going to bless my life. If I go to church and I honor God with doing religious things, then God is indebted to me, and he's going to bless my life. And you know how we know that that's true? Because there are many people that come in the doors with the idea that, you know, my life's just a mess, and I want God to fix my life, so I'm going to come and do the things that he wants me to do, and he says I have to do. And you know what the reality is? When God doesn't move quick enough to bless their life the way they believe he should bless, because they rubbed the genie's bottle. And when the genie didn't come out and grant him three wishes and do everything that was asked of him to do, then guess what happens? They're out just as quick as they came in. They bail on God as quick as they tried to step in and say, I need God. They're not saying actually they need God. What they're saying is they need what God does. And there's a big difference in our lives, church, between loving the gift and loving the giver of the gift. So the question becomes, how do we come to God? What does it mean, this statement, to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools? Because I don't know about you, I don't want to lay an offering up to God and he say, that's a, that's a sacrifice of a fool. If you want to know what was being referred to here, you don't have to look any further than the prophets. 
Because what we forget is that these books like Ecclesiastes, they're happening in time and space and in history. And so the Bible, because all the books aren't put chronologically, there is a Bible that exists, I highly recommend it, that is chronological. But most of our Bibles are not chronological. And so the reality is we forget where was Isaiah, where was Amos, where are all the different prophets during this time period that give us context into what the people were being told by God's prophets. And what we find that in these days, the message that was going out, the message that would be heard by Israel for a couple of centuries through the lives of the kings can be summed up in Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 5. The great book of Isaiah, which is one of the great prophetic books, just turn over a couple books and you'll find Isaiah chapter 1. We find out the spiritual condition of God's people in Israel. What was going on in their worship with God? How much does God care about our obedience, or does, or does he just want us to come in and do our religious duty? And it doesn't matter how we live. It doesn't matter what we do outside of that hour. All that matters is we're faithful to God in that hour. Let me tell you how he feels about it, because in Isaiah 1, God could not have been more clear. This is the opening to this great prophetic book. And I want you to see, beginning in verse 10, that he is speaking to Israel, but you almost miss that because of the way he starts this section. And the title of this section in my Bible, I don't know what yours says, but this is what mine says. Let this sink in. God has had enough. Now you, you answer for me. Does it sound like a good place to be spiritually when God has had enough? I would say that's a very dangerous place to live, probably. And listen to why it says God has had enough. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now, Sodom doesn't exist, so who is he talking to? The Israelites. And you know what that means? That means that there is no difference between the people that are sitting in worship on Sunday and the rest of the world. Now, folks, that's an indictment on the church today. You may not want to confess it. You may not want to realize it. But there is a reality that within the body of Christ, the sin is just as rampant in here as it is out there. People are trying to live together. You've got Christians sleeping together outside of marriage. You've got Christians cheating on their spouses. You've got Christians cheating on their taxes. You've got Christians that go home every day and they abuse verbally their wife, their husband, their children. We gamble at the same rates. We get drunk at the same rates. We get high at the same rates. We get divorced at the same rates. That's what makes God say, you rulers of Sodom, you know what he's saying? There's no difference. Y'all are getting quiet on me. Don't get quiet on me. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So he says it's the leaders. He says it's the people. And listen to his criticism. He says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? He says, why do you think I care about all the lambs and all the bulls that you are throwing up on these altars? You're slitting their throats. You're putting your hand on them. You're putting all of your sin on them. Yet it means nothing. 
And for you, I mean, I want you to think about this because you say, how does that relate to New Testament? We don't offer animals. You're right. We have a perfect, holy sacrifice, God's son, yet we do the same thing. We are glad to put all of our sin on him and just go on living like Sodom and Gomorrah, believing that all we got to do is Jesus will take care of it. Jesus will take care of it. Do you see that we're making the same mistake? He says, you just keep piling on sacrifices. And you just keep increasing all of your sin. You know, no difference in the world. And listen to what he says. I have had enough of the burnt offering of rams. See, that's why it's titled, God has had enough. That's God's word. I have had enough of all these offerings, he says. Of the fat, of the fed cattle, I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Let that sink in. He's asking the question, why are you doing all this? Why are you coming? And why are you offering? And why are you sacrificing? And why are you worshiping? Who required this of you? And what is the obvious answer? God did. I mean, the people could have easily said, you did. But that's when God's going to come back and say, you're not listening to me. You're not doing what I'm truly asking you to do. Because, folks, if we say we follow Jesus by faith, that does away with the genie in the bottle idea. You know why? Because faith is believing God's word, loving God's word, delighting in God's word, and then believing and obeying God's word. You see, we, 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 we misunderstand faith. If God's our little genie, that means that we get God out when we need him and we tell him what we need and God has to do it. And all I do is I look at God and say, well, God, I had faith. God, I believed and you didn't do what I wanted you to do. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is what has God said? Do I believe it and am I willing to obey it? You see the difference in those two things? One is all about your will. One is all about God's will. One is all about your plan. One is all about God's plan. One is all about your ways, and one has totally to do with his ways. And we've got to decide, are we a people of faith, true biblical faith, that are willing to obey the voice and the will of God? That's a real question that you have to answer today. And you know what he says to you? That if you really have faith, you'll believe and you'll obey. Faith, listen to this church, without repentance... isn't real worship. It doesn't matter what you say you believe. It matters whether you do what you say you believe in the power of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that he can transform you, change you, or have you just accepted that I'm going to live like the world and just cling to Jesus and say, Jesus, just get on that cross again for me. Jesus, just get up there and be whipped again for me. Just put the crown on again. Just, just be nailed to it one more time. Just get up there over and over and over. I mean, do you, do you see the lack of love in our hearts when we approach Jesus like that? And God says, I, I mean, when you go to verse 13, he says, bring your worthless offerings no longer. That's a staggering statement from the Old Testament. Incense, which is a picture of prayer, it's an abomination to me. He's basically saying, don't even bother praying. It makes me sick to hear your voice is what he's saying. 
because you don't mean it. You, 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 you're asking me to do something when you have no intention of doing anything yourself. And then when I don't do it, you just get mad at me. That's what God's saying. He says, your new moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. He said, I can't endure. And, and boy, 13 is what you need to underline. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. You know what that means? Let me break that down for you. That simply means, he says, I can't stand when the people of God gather together and he looks in the room and there's nothing but sinfulness in the solemn assembly. That when you look nothing, you look like nothing that's holy, nothing that's pure, nothing that's righteous. When, when you put the world in, if you were to drag the world in and sit them down in this room, there's no difference between those who say they have faith and those who claim there is no God. And God says, I can't stand that. So men, where are your families? You're going to keep using the excuse? Oh, I just nailed Jesus up there one more time. My family's falling apart. My wife can't stand me. I can't stand her. My kids are miserable. Thank God Jesus is there. Rather than Thank you, Jesus, for being there, for changing my heart, for giving me the ability to be the man of God that you've called me to be so I can lead my family the way you've called me to lead, to love and cherish my wife, to be faithful to her. And to raise my kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. When did we start making an excuse for why we can't do those things? And women, the same question to you. How we come to God matters. Because a fool is unknowingly doing evil. Because he's challenging God in the same way that these men and women did back in this day. That they don't take serious the sacrifice. What God has done to free them and to set them free. It doesn't mean that we come into this room and we put on a mask of perfection. But there is a difference, church, between being a sinner who is struggling. And every day seeking to follow God and, and yet we struggle. And a person who just wallows in the struggle and doesn't even try to really repent. You understand there's a difference. God knows our hearts when we have turned our hearts toward him and we are trying to live for him and we sin and we confess it and we repent and we get up and he cleans us off and he gives us a new day and we may do it again, but we get up and he cleanses us. And we keep striving and we keep asking him and we keep begging him to purify us and to make us holy and we don't just accept that I'm just going to live this way. Thank God Jesus will just get nailed up there again. That's what we want to think. Jesus died once for all. And his death makes a difference in the way that we live. So is your heart really in worship today? Offerings in the hands of believers without obedience and faith in the heart of believers, that's the sacrifice of fools. Let me say that again. When you bring offerings in the hands of believers without obedient faith, in the heart of a believer, that is when 
it's a sacrifice of fools. Because only a fool thinks he can deceive God. Only a fool tries to be insincere and put on a mask before God. And apart from faith, our offerings can be meaningless. The worship of God is our highest ministry. In church, when we talk about worship, if it is the highest call and the highest ministry of this church, then let me tell you what it has to come from. It has to come from devoted hearts, number one, and yielded hearts, number two. Devoted hearts and yielded hearts or yielded wills because sacrifice is no substitute for obedience. God refuses ritual without repentance. Mark Driscoll was very plain in what he said about this text. He said, just because you go to church and you worship God doesn't mean that you're not a fool. And I'll say this, many of us struggle because I want to ask you the question. Let me just ask you the question. Is it easier to let God change the way you live or is it easier just to change the way you think and believe? Most of us want to change theology. Most of us want to change what we believe. And it's so subtle. Well, I just can't change. Well, I'm just human. Well, this is just more than any one person can bear. And you realize the Bible speaks to all those things. Well, I'm all alone and there's no one to help me. Well, I have to do this on my own. God requires... There's so many things that keep us in sin because we don't want to believe Jesus at his word to do what he says he can do it's easier just to change our theology and what we think about God and what he says about worship as long as I come on Sundays I'm good that ain't good theology folks that's just an effort to not have to change the way you live Worship isn't about one hour. When we talk about being careful about our attitude toward God, don't think God is just in your life one hour a week. Don't think your attitude should be to God. You get Sunday, I get the other six days. There is no division in that life. He either has all of you or none of you. The reality is, I want to ask you a question. Forget about what you do in this room. When you leave this room, are you going to obey God with what he says about your time? Men, you're going to just keep busting 80 hours a week? Telling everybody why you have no time to serve, no time to teach, no time to be on mission, no time with your kids, no time, no time, no time. You're just going to keep ignoring what God says about time? And about the way you should spend it? Church, you're going to leave here today and keep telling God how you're going to live out your sex life?
never told God I wouldn't live with somebody and have sex with them before marriage. But it don't matter if you said it or not. It's what he says, not what you say that matters. What does he say about purity and holiness and the sanctity of marriage? And when are we as a church going to stand up and say enough? You're living in sin. Every bit as much as if you were committing adultery. It's fornication. It's every bit as sinful as pornography or any other sexual sin. When are we going to say that sin is sin? And obey what God tells us in the word of God. Because what we do on Monday through Saturday matters. The Bible has something to say about our time, our sex life, our spouse, our kids, even our money and how we use the things that he's placed into our life. Are we using them for eternity or for us? All right, I beat that one to death. Secondly, we must be careful how we speak to God. When you go back to verse 2, listen to what he says. He basically says in verse 2 and 3, Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought. To bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven, you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort. And the voice of a fool through many words, he's saying, be careful how you speak to God. We're way too flippant. I already said we act like God's the genie. Uh, but other times, too, we act like God's, you know, you ever see the shirts, Jesus is my homeboy? Jesus isn't your homeboy. He's far from your homeboy. He's God. He's holy. He's righteous. He's the creator. He's the king. He's not your buddy. When it says that he's our friend, I want you to understand the context of that. I want to be a friend to my children, but I want you to know that my greatest responsibility, who I truly am to them, is their what? I'm their father. I'm their parent. And I will tell you all day long, my kids better not talk to me as their dad the way they talk to every other friend they have. Do you see the difference? They better not treat me like every other friend that they have. There is a respect. There is a reverence. There is supposed to be something to the authority that, that is in our life. And we have issues with authority. We want to drag God down to be our homeboy. And he says, be careful. Don't be hasty in your words, impulsive in your thoughts. And I love the way he puts it. He says, because God is in heaven and you are on earth. What does he mean by that? and he could not be more different as much as you're alike. He is all powerful. You are powerless. He is in complete control. You are completely out of control. He knows everything. Comparatively, you know nothing. Anybody want to tell me how Saturn got its rings or how many birds are outside in the parking lot? Or You don't know anything. And you think you do. You've got to remember who it is that he is. Don't be so flippant with God. You remember he says that we should fear him because he's holy and he's exalted. And we're just beings on earth, finite 
speaking to the infinite. And we need to watch our tone with God. We need to address Him with respect and restraint. Many times, you know how it comes out is when we go to God with our anger. I can tell you this, my kids a lot of times aren't happy with things I say. But they better not come up and wag their finger in my face. And tell me how stupid I am and how I, I should have done this or I should have done that. Uh, parents, how do you respond when kids do that? Aren't you lucky you ain't got the power of God? <laughs> I mean, I have mute children every day. I'd be like, mute! You won't speak for six months. And we think somehow that we've earned the right to, to wag our finger at God. To let our bitterness just overflow towards Him. And every time we do it, what we're screaming is, I don't trust you. I don't believe you. And folks, I'm not saying that life isn't hard. I'm not saying that life isn't difficult. But you've got to remember who it is, the, the one in whose presence you are walking into. And what do you really believe about him? Do you believe he's ever late? Do you believe he's ever wrong? Do you believe he's ever not good? Do you believe that he ever is out of control? Do you believe that he has no plan? Do you believe that he doesn't love you, doesn't care? If those things aren't true, then that means the other part is true. And can we go to him believing you are a good father? And I don't understand, but I trust you. We have to be careful. You say, well, why do we have to be careful? Sure, think about Job's friends. Remember, Job's friends, not only did they, I mean, it, it wasn't just what they spoke to God, but it was what they spoke about God. We're as responsible about that with our lips, too. If you remember, they thought they knew why Job was suffering. If you remember, they tried to speak wisdom into Job's life and things that they didn't understand. It's like the people that get up and go, you know, I, I think that hurricane was because all them sinners in New Orleans, all the drugs and sex and rock and roll down there, and that's why. God judged New Orleans with that hurricane. You don't know what that hurricane was about. How dare you speak for God and think that you know what he's doing, why he's doing, and how he, he, say, he says you're just like Job's friends. Job was a righteous man, and they're looking at him going, well, you must not be righteous for all this bad stuff to be happening to you. That sounds wise, doesn't it? Except they were wrong. And God said, you need to go shave your head Get in some torn clothes and put some ashes on your head. And you better get down and repent. Because you just did a disservice to Job. And you just made his suffering ten times worse. And you don't know what you're talking about. We've got to be careful what we say. For God and how we speak to God. In case you don't know it, let me just clarify this. You don't need to tell God how to run his universe. Okay, be careful, because many times we do think we know better than him, and we think we're going to sit down on our knees and tell God what he should and should not do. Don't feel the need to speak for him like Job's friends. Don't accuse God as though he weren't in control. Don't act with bitterness towards him as though we sit in judgment over him. Because I can tell you this beyond a shadow of a doubt. If I've learned one thing in this life, I've learned it well. That when there is a problem in my life, I'm the problem, not God. That I know. It's always me. It's always me. It's never him. 
he's so patient with us. And I want to ask you, have you learned to ask God with a humble heart? And have you learned to trust that God knows best? You say, well, you can't do that in this life. I disagree. Because if that was true, he wouldn't be telling us here to do differently. And Bill, you were a great example. I'll never forget the time that Spencer had the medical issue with the aneurysm. Remember that? And I think I said to you, how can you be so calm? I was in my early 20s. Aneurysms were serious things. When you hear that, you immediately, I mean, just a father's heart. And I watched Bill, and at first I thought, okay, that's just a show for staff. But you know what? I never saw him worry. And it's not because he doesn't love his son. He loves his boys and his daughter more than they know. He would give his life for theirs in a second. But you know what he knew? That they've always been God's. They've never been truly his. And I watched him trust. I I was thinking, he should be hysterical. He should be, why? I've been faithful. I've done this and I've done, I mean, I was waiting for that. And guess what? I never saw it. You know what I saw? faith and trust I know it can be lived out he says don't use too many words and don't be hasty with your words the secret to an acceptable prayer life is having a prepared heart if you're going to go to God make sure that you have a prepared heart that you know what you believe about him because the mouth speaks what the heart contains John Bunyan said it well, in prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. And Spurgeon said, it's not the length of our prayers, but the strength of our prayers that make a difference. You won't manipulate God with many words. Let me say that again. You won't manipulate God with many words, with many emotions. And we we get manipulated easily. Macy can manipulate me. She's good at it. Macy's my little girl, my my little 14-year-old. Uh, a few months ago, she's like, Dad, I don't like Spotify. Apple Music's better. Well, I don't know the difference between Apple Music and Spotify. Kevin puts mess on my phone, and I listen to what he puts on my phone. That's how it goes in my life, right? Spotify seems great. But she was convinced Apple Music was better. And I looked at her, and I said, really, seriously? I mean, it's music. Uh, I think you can get anything you want on Spotify. This is crazy. Why do we have to pay? Right now, that's free. Why do we have to pay for this Apple Music stuff? And she was like, come on, Dad, you just don't understand, and whatever. And I thought it was done. She goes upstairs. It's quiet, and I should have known by the quietness that something was up. And for the next 30, 45 minutes, she was upstairs making a PowerPoint presentation with the pros and cons (laughs) so her dumb dad could understand a little better what I didn't apparently understand the first time we had the conversation. Now, she was super respectful. She didn't come down and say, Dad, you're dumb. That's how I took it when I started watching it so we hook it up to the tv and it's you know well, dad this and this and and you know when you look at this and consider that and you know the whole time i'm sitting there not realizing i'm being manipulated because i'm kind of like well that's true yeah that's that makes sense what and at the end of the day guess what i did she has apple music this day god's not so easily manipulated He truly knows what's best. 
listen to what he said. Let your words be few. Make your request to him, but trust him. And lastly, he says, we must be careful in our commitments to God. See, back in the day, and this, when this was written, there were many vows that were made. And when you went to the temple, you could make vows. Usually they were made publicly, and that way they were kept. It's no different today. If, I mean, if you remember, there are many stories in the Bible. If you remember Samuel's mother. When Hannah decided, that, I mean, she, she was heartbroken over not having a child, and she made a vow to the Lord that if you give me a child, I will give him back to you, and he will serve out his life in the ministry for the tabernacle. And that's exactly what he did. And when we make a vow, we have to keep a vow. And he says, be careful in your commitments that you make to God, because, folks, it is easy for us to make a commitment and not keep our commitment to the Lord. Now, let's define commitment. We just talked, we heard a great prayer about D-Day. And I don't know about you, but the things I saw on D-Day, was the, 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 what struck me the most was that reenactment of the invasion where they parachuted all the people in. You know what commitment really looks like, right? I mean, neither of those guys on that plane could have said, I'm committed to jump on this D-Day celebration, and you, you can show up at the airport, and that's not really committed. You can put on whatever you put on to jump out of an airplane, and that's not really committed. You can put the parachute on. That's not committed. You can get in the airplane. And there have been many people that have put on the parachute and showed up for the plane and gotten up in the air and made a decision at that moment that I'm not as committed as I say that I am because when the time came, when do you know that you're committed? Because true commitment means once you're out, you can't get back in. And see how we've watered down commitment? God says, when you make a vow to me, when you make a commitment to me, he says, you will repay that vow. But see, we like the word, especially in Baptist circles, recommitment, 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 recommitment. Folks, the Bible don't speak to recommitment. The Bible speaks to commitment. It's what Cortez had to decide. Remember when he came to the New World? He heard the murmurings and the ramblings of all the men that were with him, and he realized that they were going to be very prone to want to get back on the ships and go back home. So what did he do? He burned the ships. Because guess what? When he burned the ships, you just shut the door. You, you just made no way back. And folks, I don't know about you, but the commitment that I see with Jesus is that we aren't called to turn back. So be careful about your commitments to the Lord. He, it's interesting because look at what he says here. He says basically in verse 4, when you make a vow to God, don't be laid in pain for it. So if you say you're going to do it, do it. Many of you have made commitments over and over about giving. Do you keep the commitment? When God says be faithful in your tithes and offerings, have you ever promised and not kept it? And he goes a step further. He says, don't be late in paying for it, for he takes no delight in fools. He says, it's foolish to do that. Pay now what you vow. But listen to this. It's better that you should not vow than 
that you should vow and not pay. Let me give you the example of that. I mean, think about it in the, the terms of marriage. He's saying, I mean, that statement says to you, you're better off single. You're better off not getting married because think of the difference in the life where you choose not to at least be married. Is it going to be tough? Are you going to make sacrifices? You better believe it. But listen to what he says. Better that than for you to make a vow that I will love you and I will cherish you and I will honor you and I will be only with you until death do us part. When you break that vow, do you know the misery you bring into your life? The death and destruction that you bring in to your life? And he says, I mean, I would say that's true of that statement. If you have no intention of keeping the vow of marriage, don't get married. Doesn't that make sense? And so I want to challenge you, church. How easy is it to come into a room like this and to hear a sermon and to make a commitment that we have no intention of keeping? How many times do we say that we intend to obey God and leave and we go back the same old ways? When you stood up here with your children and dedicated them to the Lord, How many Bible studies have you had at home? Because we talked about that up here. How often do you keep them in this body of believers so that every year this day is set apart, every week this day is set apart as priority in their life? Or are you teaching them that, you know, we said, you know, we made it, we dedicated you, but that's just in hopes that one day you're going to get saved. No, no, we, we were very specific in the dedications in this room. That you would pray for your children, that you would raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that you would teach them the word of God, that you would have them here so that others could pour into their lives as well, and that they would see their relationship with Christ as primary. When you stand to make a vow, do you mean it? Because folks, we all know that we struggle at times to keep it. What do you do? Then you own it. You repent of it. You don't excuse it. You certainly don't hide it or lie about it. That's what happened in the book. Actually, well, it's so Old Testament. No, it's not. It's New Testament. Anybody remember Ananias and Sapphira? Remember their mistake was simply God didn't say they had to sell everything and give it and disperse it among the poor in the church. But they decided in their hearts that they would be hypocritical, that they would be insincere. And so they came in worshiping God and talking about how they had sold this land and given all of it to God. And God called them out on the lie. Do you remember what happened to them? This is in the book of Acts. They fell over dead. And don't you remember what Simon Peter said to them? Why did you do this? Why did you grieve the Holy Spirit this way? God didn't require it of you. God didn't ask it of you. So why in the world did you make this vow? And then lie about it. These are serious issues. And I want you to know that when it comes to whose side is God on, he's not on your side. He's not on my side. You know whose side God is on? He's on his own side. And so as we consider our attitude toward him and how we speak to him and our commitments to him, remember that he has his own purposes and his own plans that he is desiring to accomplish in us because they are best for us and they are good for us. 
He's not here to accomplish your schemes and your plans. It's the other way around. And he says, if you owe God one thing, he says, fear him. Because not trusting him will cost you. It'll ruin the rest of your life. You're wasting your life if you're just accusing and questioning God. That's what a fool does. You know what the preacher says to do? Fear him. Because let me tell you why people go to God with a wrong attitude. They don't fear him. Let me tell you why people pray and speak in a way that dishonors God. It's because they don't fear him. And let me tell you why people make commitments and recommitments and recommitments and recommitments and recommitments and they, you know, it, it's the repentance, it, it's, the, it's the sorrow without real repentance. It's the, I'm going to say I'm going to change, but I'm never going to change. You know why we do that? Because we don't fear God. And folks, we've got to get back to the place that we fear the Lord. The wisdom, beginning of wisdom is what? It's, it's the fear of the Lord. The beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, it, is, it begins with the fear of the Lord. I don't know about you, I know my dad loves me, but I have a healthy fear of my dad. It's not a question of love. Those two things exist together. There's a reverence that comes. With knowing and following and serving God. So as Kevin plays today, I want more than anything for you to pray today. If there was ever a day that we needed as a body of believers to slow down and to pray as a body. It's today. Because I can tell you, there were things that I needed to consider this week as I studied this, things I needed to repent of as I studied this. Because anytime God looks at us and says, guard your steps as you come into my presence, there's not a one of us in this room, myself included, that doesn't need to consider where we are and our walk with him. So some of you are here today, and, and, and that verse out of Isaiah is you. You're bringing sin into the camp you're bringing sin into the presence of god and it's not that we don't all come in stained with dirty feet and we need jesus to wash us but there's some of us in this room that we literally are ignoring the commands of god day in and day out day in and day out day in and day out these aren't just sins that we crept into and found our way into and immediately repented and and made changes but sins that we have accepted and we just look like the world what are you going to do about that today? Some of you need to take serious and remember the holiness of the God that we serve and how much honor is due him. Respect is due him. Reverence is due him in the way that we talk to him. You don't have the right to wag your hand in his face and tell him what he's doing wrong. And let your bitterness just overflow and your emotions overcome you. Do you trust and believe he is who he says he is. It'll change the way you talk to him. You'll fear him. You'll know he's good. Are you willing to keep the commitments that you make? Is it time? Some of you have been saying over and over, 
I'm going to start tithing. I'm going to start teaching. I'm going to start being missional. I'm going to stay. And, and, and you keep saying tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And I always tell you all what, tomorrow's the day that never comes. Today is the day. Today is the day. What you do in this moment, are you willing to jump out of the plane or not? Father, Lord, this is for your church. This message is for your people. Lord Jesus, I just pray today that you would convict our hearts. Speak to us. Lord, messages are not always easy. As we said last week, the truth sometimes is the hardest pill to swallow. But Lord, you desire to do work in us today. You're not cutting our hearts to kill us, to hurt us. Lord, like a surgeon, you're using it like a scalpel to save us, to cut away that which is cancerous, to cut away that which is killing us and destroying us. And Father, I just pray that we would allow you to do in us what you desire today, to cut away those parts of our lives that that you've convicted us about today. So Lord, as your people pray, meet us here. And God, may we come to you with reverent fear, but also knowing that you are our daddy God. And when we fear you, you call us friends. Lord, it is amazing what Jesus has done to usher us into your presence. And so, Father, we boldly come to the throne room. And we boldly come to the mercy seat. And we pray and we ask you to do a work in us as only you can in Jesus' name. Amen.